All right. Have mercy. <laughs> um, why don't you pray with me? Lord, um, we are uh, too hungry, too thirsty uh, to play games, uh, to uh, desire anything less than a feast of the word. Uh, Lord, that is uh, too much for any person to deliver, so we pray that your spirit would attend the word, uh, that you would write it on our hearts, uh, that it would take root uh, and bear much fruit. Uh, Lord, uh, by it, may we die to self and live to Christ. May we seek your glory. May we love our neighbors, uh, not only in this church, but love the city to which you've called us for, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, I was uh, driving around, and a, and a news story came on my car radio uh, that had to do with uh, the growth of the disease leprosy in, in, in the United States. Um, apparently, it's still rare, but it is growing. And what, what got my attention in particular was that the place it is most prominent, um, where you're most likely to catch it, is my own home state of Texas where I also happened to be living at the time, and so that'll get your attention. Um, and the reason it's so prevalent in Texas can be explained uh, with one word, and that word is armadillos. Um, it turns out that armadillos carry the bacteria uh, on their bodies that transmits uh, leprosy. And since armadillos are kind of cute, and they're not all that hard to catch, People catch them sometimes, and along with catching the armadillo, they catch leprosy. Now, that being the case, one of the standard questions in the medical evaluation of someone who is tested positive or whom they suspect has Hansen's disease or leprosy is, you know, have you come in contact with an armadillo? And as they were playing this story, they actually played uh, part of one of these medical interviews uh, where the doctor sat down with a guy. The guy was a bit of an old codger kind of ranch guy. And they asked him, you know, he had tested positive for leprosy, and they said, at any time, have you come into contact with an armadillo? And he said, well, yeah, in fact, I did. I, I caught one. Um, and not only did I catch it, I kept it for a while because I uh, wanted to spray paint it gold before I released it back into the wild. And, you know, this doctor who was very interested in that got a little bit thrown off and said, well, why in the world would you go and do something like that? And he said, well, I just kind of love the idea of someone being out on a ranch somewhere and seeing a golden armadillo go by. <laughs> and thinking and saying to themselves, you know, well, there's something I never expected to see. I thought of that story uh, as um, I was looking at this passage, uh, this last part of, the ch of Romans, this last chapter, where we are looking at something you would never expect to see. Uh, admittedly, it doesn't look a whole lot like a whole lot more than the Apostle Paul's list of people he's got to write thank you notes to or something like that. But we are looking at a golden armadillo. It's... What we are seeing here is something none of us could ever expect to see in the state of nature. Because what we're looking at is a group of people together who were once no people, but now have become God's people. People who 
a church that has been conceived by him, created by him, people who we might say like that armadillo have been caught by him, cared for by God himself so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, they are bound together in the gospel of Jesus Christ, relying on it, relishing it together. In the passage just before this, Paul prayed that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And he would go on to say that he wouldn't venture to speak of anything other than what Christ has accomplished in his ministry by word and deed. Which is to say that as we look at this, we are looking at what Jesus has done against anything anyone could ever expect or imagine. That they have become a church that certainly is not without its problems, but one in which Christ has accomplished and is accomplishing something great in making a people for himself. And we can see from this passage that for everything else going on, it's a church that's living out the gospel, a place where human life and relationships have been and are being totally reoriented. It's the church that hasn't fallen into the conservative church ditch of being nothing more than a truth delivery system, nor has it fallen into the liberal church ditch of being nothing more than a good deed delivery system. It is a church wholly founded upon and growing in the gospel so that it is expressed and lived out in word and in deed. It's what, this is why the missiologist Leslie Newbigin calls the church the hermeneutic of the gospel. Now, that word hermeneutic is kind of a fancy word, but it just means a, a way of interpreting something, an interpretive key, a way of making sense of, sense of something that, that would otherwise be incomprehensible. And Leslie Newbegin is saying that the community that the church is is utterly incomprehensible. It makes no sense apart from one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what explains its existence. The gospel is that which brings forgiveness of sins. It explains how it is that people who would otherwise be at each other's throats would instead relate to each other with deep, loving, familial affection because they've received the ultimate in forgiveness and the ultimate in reconciliation in Jesus, and they're living that out. It's the same gospel that creates a whole new ground for identity and righteousness. It breaks down walls that would otherwise divide one another. It means because of that, no one has to jockey for position or power anymore or try to create an identity or righteousness of their own because on the one hand, the gospel humbles you and it tells you that whatever else you may think you are, you're a sinner saved by grace. And on the other hand, it assures you and it heartens you that whatever else you may think you are, you're a son and a daughter of the Most High because of Jesus. Years ago, I was having a lunch with a pastor friend of mine, a pastor from another denomination. We got to talking, you know, about some of the thornier areas of pastoral ministry. And he was uh, relating to someone in his church uh, pastorally, and he said, he told me about a situation, he said, you know, it's so hard, but here's what I can't do. I cannot dare challenge them on this because this is their identity. And I told him, brother, that is my entire hope in the gospel. It's what I get wrong all the time, that I grasp onto some other identity outside of Christ. 
That, and many of those things are good. I grasp onto the father identity. I grasp, on, grasp onto the husband identity. I grasp onto the pastor identity. You know, yesterday I was grasping onto the college football identity, you know, which makes me miserable every week. So I so badly need to be reminded of who I really am. And I'm in Christ. And I'm a sinner, saved by grace, loved and adopted into God's family. That's the beauty of the gospel. It secures, it anchors, it destroys all the posturing. It opens up new possibilities for relationship as God creates one new people in Christ. And he does that amazingly without obliterating the uniqueness of who we are as image bearers, of who we are in our background, our race, our ethnicity, our economic status. We're going to see that in a minute in this passage. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you find is that being a part of the church is to be in the mix of a whole lot of people with whom you would otherwise have nothing to do except for Jesus. It, it, it is not the place where you've man, you know, where we've simply managed to connect with people who check all of our boxes on our self-curated, um, you know, friendship love connection list. And I, I'll even go further to say, should you find yourself in a church with people who match up perfectly with your educational background, with your tax bracket, with your cultural values, with your politics, with your race, all I can say is run. Because it is highly likely that what is keeping you together is something more like a common sociology rather than a common savior. The church is, is radically different from that. Uh, it, it isn't even made up of people we would have chosen for ourselves. It's made up of people that God has chosen for you. And that's powerful, powerful in relationship. I was thinking this morning between the services about a story about John Wesley and George Whitfield, and they had a, actually a fairly important theological rift between them that affected their relationship deeply. And not only the two of them, but camps began to form. You know, there were kind of the Wesley people and the Whitfield people, and it was grievous, and thankfully, they ultimately reconciled. But in the thick of that, one of George Whitfield's compadres came to him, and he said, do you think, do you think we'll ever see John Wesley in heaven? That's how bad it got. And George Whitfield actually said, he said, no, I don't. Because John Wesley will be sitting so much closer to the throne than you and me, that we won't even be able to see him from where we're sitting. That's the deep bonds of affection in Christ. That's someone who, who lives with the knowledge that um, it's not the people I would necessarily choose for myself. I have people in my life whom Jesus has chosen for me who very well may be closer to the throne than I, than, than I ever will be. So that's what we're looking at this morning, something like what I'll call the strange beauty of the gospel, um, the impossible community made possible by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I've made some general propositions about the church, but what we're looking at in this passage is, is a little window where we get to see the people of the church. We see how powerfully and profoundly the gospel went to work in forming a community that is utterly and completely inexplicable apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, when I was a kid, we used to do this thing, maybe you did, with your fingers. 
I have stubby fingers, so I, I never was able to do it well. But it was the whole, here's the church, here's the people, here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up, and here's all the people. And as I've gotten older, a lot of those things that I thought were so goofy as a kid, I'm finding actually are freighted with profound theological truth. And that's one of them. Um, the real stuff of the church is not the steeple stuff, right? It's the people stuff. It's the people stuff of, of lives that have been rearranged, reoriented by the gospel. And it's, it's kind of cheesy, but it's why I told my old church where we didn't have a building, but, you know, we're sort of dreaming about maybe someday we might have one. I would say, well, when we get one, if we get one, I want to put a sign outside that just says the meeting place of the church, of Christ church, not the church, just to make the point right? that the church isn't the building, but it's the people, it's the community. The building is merely the container where, all, where the church happens, right? Now, you may have heard the saying that hurt people hurt people. What we're seeing in this passage is the effect that loved people love people. People who are loved by Jesus uh, love one another. You can't escape the deep affection that really courses through this passage. And I don't know how many times Greg said, you know, greet, commend just the fact that Paul knows so many names and is, has them on his heart uh, conveys the, the depth of affection. They are known. They are loved by Paul and by each other. And that really makes its own kind of point, doesn't it? That, that this is a community in which all kinds of people are known, both known and loved. There's 26 names in these 16 verses. A lot of it is just nothing other than the name. There's, it's, much of it is sort of fragmentary. But there still is a lot that can be learned from some of these names in how the gospel has not only the power to change community, but actually how it has gone to work in creating a different kind of community. Attention is given first to one particular person, a woman named Phoebe. More is said about her than anyone else. And the first thing you learn about her is that she actually wasn't part of this particular congregation. Uh, in, uh, instead, Paul commends her to it, which is which likely means that she's the one who brought the letter to the Romans to the Romans. He commends her in these, this very specific way. He commends her as a sister. He commends her as a servant, and he commends her as a saint. First, he calls her a sister, which is, of course, a familial, intimate way of speaking of somebody. That is to say that she's more than someone to him who just shared a common belief or a common goal, or a common passion, but she was one who had, because of Jesus, been bound to these people and to Paul himself in, in the closest relation possible, as, as a sister, as a member of the family. And I was thinking about this. One of my favorite things to do uh, is also one of my children's least favorite things to do, and that's when we go on vacation. I like to go to church. Um, and, and the reason I love it, and the, well, the reason they don't love it is they want to just be on vacation. Um, but the reason I love it is that feeling of sharing a deep bond with someone I've never met before. It's really a unique thing, I think. It's really a powerful thing. And, and that's how Paul commends her. He, he's essentially saying, I know you're meeting her for the first time, but greet her for who she is. She's a sister. She's part of the family. There are real bonds there that haven't been formed by your social life. They've been formed by your Savior. 
It's very significant. He also calls her on top of, in addition to being a sister, she's a servant. And when you think about it, it's kind of wild to see sister and servant right alongside each other in this passage. Um, That would certainly go against any kind of conventional understanding of how a Roman family would function, which is to say that people of Phoebe's prominence would have servants who would do things for them, but but a family member would never consider being a servant within a household. You were either a sister or a servant. You wouldn't be both. But in the family of God's people, because of the gospel, family members aren't merely served. They serve one another. One of Martin Luther's great treatises is called The Freedom of a Christian, which you can read. I'd, I'd, I'd recommend it. You can get it online for free. And he starts off with presenting a thesis. And he says, actually, I've got two thesis statements. They're going to seem like they contradict, but in the gospel, they don't contradict each other. They complement one another perfectly. And, and the thesis is this. Every Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And every Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject to all. Both are true. Christians are both at the same time because of who Jesus is. Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve that we might be set free from sin. And that grace is so liberating that the only logical response is one of grateful service to Jesus and his people. For the grace that has been given. Grace sets you free. Grace compels service. Now, the particular term applied to Phoebe uh, for being a servant is diakonos. It's the word we get uh, our word deacon from. And there's a debate, and I'll say it's an important one, about how this term is applied to Phoebe as it relates to church office. And, you know, the, the debate sort of centers on the idea that there are basically two ways the term is used in the New Testament. One is narrow and one is broad. The narrow use of it refers to the specific office of deacon. Uh, we have deacons in this church. Deacons are called to serve alongside elders and meeting the material needs of the church. Um, in, in comforting those who in some way or another are going through some hard times. But the general application of the word basically just means to be a servant-hearted person. So, you know, we could say in our own church, on the one hand, you could be referring to the particular officers in the church who are dedicating themselves to the works of mercy, who are, doing de- who are, who are deacons. But you could also say, you know, anybody who's helped set up folding chairs or make coffee or care for babies in this church is also a deacon even if they don't have the office. So even though there's a debate about the ambiguity of that particular term, here's here's why I get into all that. There's no ambiguity about how the gospel works in such a way that it makes everyone both utterly free and utterly obligated to serve. In that sense, we're all deacons. And there's, there's really no way to, to know if Phoebe is, was the officer or if she was just a servant-hearted person. But what, what gets lost in the debate is that in the life of this prominent, wealthy, Gentile woman of high social rank, that life's been reordered by the gospel. She's been changed from one who would normally demand service of others to one who's now delivering it for others. Paul actually calls her. You get a sense of the depth of this. He refers to her as a patron to many people. The the term there is 
implies that she was a great benefactor. It's the kind of term you would only apply to someone who was really wealthy or super connected um, and use their wealth and connections to benefit the community. And that's what Phoebe had done for the church. She'd been a great help to many people. Paul says, you know, I've been benefited from her greatly myself. And finally, he calls her a saint. Now, I think it's important to get some clarity on this term as well, because when you see the term saint, you tend to think spiritual superhero. Like there's Christians, and then there's the special Christians who are the saints, uh, a cut above the others. But that, in fact, is not the way the Bible ever talks about saints. In the Bible, people aren't called saints because they've succeeded in making themselves holy through their superior prayers or their personal discipline or their profound thoughts or because they've pulled off a verified miracle. Instead, every single Christian is called a saint because every single Christian is themselves a miracle of grace. Not holy because they've done something to make themselves holy, but, but because they've been made holy by Jesus. They've been set apart by grace. So this is why Paul is always writing entire churches and saying, here's a letter to the saints at Ephesus. The saints in Philippi, the saints and faithful brothers at Colossae. And if you dig into those letters, you, you learn very quickly that there are people in those churches who don't meet our conventional definition of what makes for a saint. There's a lot of people who are struggling. but They're all saints, all set apart by Jesus, by grace. They're all saints because they've all been saved. So Paul doesn't set Phoebe apart so that the church would know, hey, a rock star has arrived at your doorstep. But he, he says, in fact, welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. Welcome her as one of your own, even though you don't even know her yet. Like, she's one of you. She's a sinner saved by grace, just like you. Now, that's just Phoebe. Um, I mentioned that there are 25 other names. We're going to go through them one by one. I'm going to have Greg read those names again. It's so beautifully. No, we're not. And again, it's tough to get granular about each of these names, but we need to remember a profound thing in that this church, and we've talked about it a lot in this series, is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, people of different ethnic backgrounds have been brought together. And look, we live in a culture in which, even though it is regularly challenged, diversity is basically valued. It's basically expected. It's largely celebrated. If you were to go out on, a, on the street and ask someone, for example, if a workplace or a school or a recreational area or a church should be diverse, the, the mainstream consensus, most people would say, nearly everyone would say, well, absolutely. Even if they didn't believe it because it's the cultural expectation. That's our cultural value. And I get into that because in the ancient world, that was not a cultural value. It was not expected. It was not celebrated. What was expected is that whatever ancient divisions were in place among peoples would remain in place. And the idea that there would be any value in kind of forming bonds between the peoples, between the races, between the different ethnicities would be seen, I think, at best as foolish and, and perhaps even dangerous. And yet, I say all that to appreciate unbelievable thing it is that there is a community in Rome of Jews and Gentiles. 
two people that no one ever would have expected would be together in fellowship, in loving fellowship toward one another. Not to say problems didn't come up, they did. But that God has done something, again, impossible apart from grace. And the cultural divides run the gamut. The Romans couldn't understand why the Jews didn't eat pork, which they loved. They couldn't understand why they circumcised infant boys. They couldn't understand why they had just one temple with no pictures in it, no statues, why they didn't work on Sundays, which they saw as utterly lazy. Uh, even their sense of time and history for Romans, it was like time was like a river that's always moving, it's always shifting. We're all along for the, the, the ride, whatever ride the gods take us on. The Jewish sense of time and history was really anchored in the great redemptive events of history. Like you and I may not have been at the Exodus, but we were there. We were there as a people. We will forever be a participant in that. That, that, that is still the sense if you've ever been to a Passover Seder. The Romans celebrated birthdays. The Jews thought birthday celebrations were utterly idolatrous. The only birthday in the Old Testament is Pharaoh's birthday. You know, uh, Romans, for Romans, religion played a very small part in personal morality, where for the Jews, God's law undergirded the entirety of what was considered sinful or virtuous in one's personal life. So from clothing to commerce to family to marriage to morality to politics to government, right down to what you would put on your dinner plate, the boundaries could not have been more sharply defined, except in the church, where vastly different kinds of people greeted one another as brothers and sisters, as part of the same family. That's why you have name, Jewish names like Aquila and Prissa right alongside Eponidas, the first Asian to come to faith. There are other dimensions to the diversity of this body. There's, there's names that stand out. One that stood out to me was, was uh, connected. There's a little connection to Mark's gospel, to a man named Simon of Cyrene who was famously compelled to carry Jesus' cross. Mark identifies him as the father of Alexander and the person mentioned in verse 13, a man named Rufus. And we know from Rufus's father's name that they were from Africa, from eastern Libya, where there was a little Jewish community. So you have in this church in Rome people with European heritage, Asian heritage, African heritage. And right along with Rufus, Paul greets Andronicus and Junia, whom he acknowledges as as fellow Jews, as fellow prisoners who had suffered for the gospel, who, who came to faith even before he did. He said, these are guys that were in jail with me. And the wild thing is right alongside Paul's, you know, jailbird buddies are some guys who are of high social and economic rank. A couple of people here uh, are not mentioned really as individuals, but as the heads of estates prominent social position in the Roman world, Aristobulus in verse 10, Narcissus in verse 11, which is the mention of these guys. It, what, what, what's coming into shape here is, is you have a church where there's something like the president of the chamber of commerce sitting next to some people who are on parole. And of course, there's also a great diversity of gender. There's 26 people mentioned here, and eight of them, probably nine, are women. And they're not commended as simply those who are present, but, are, but as those who have put their shoulder to the wheel in gospel ministry in the church. 
Paul commends Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, these, were, these are Gentile names. They are almost certainly sisters. They're almost certainly twin sisters by virtue of their names. Their names are very feminine. They literally mean delicate and dainty. But it's in the way Paul commends them that it gets interesting and even a little funny. He calls them workers in the Lord, but the way he, the term he uses is the idea of being a worker to the point of exhaustion, a really hard worker. He's kind of saying, you know, I know your names are dainty and delicate, but you're jackhammers for Jesus. No one works harder than you guys do in gospel ministry. And there are a lot of other names about, which we really, about whom we really know nothing. Asyncretus, Phlegon, Herme, Petrobus, Hermas, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, Olympus, and, and a lot of others. But I, I just want to appreciate that even though their personal stories have been lost, the redemptive story lives on. It lives on in the church. And it'll kind of get you thinking about where we are in history. Uh, no one knows when Jesus comes back, hopefully soon, but let's say in 100 years, I, I don't know if any of our names will be remembered or our stories. And I want to say that's okay. Because the critical question for the church and for the city doesn't have to do with your story or mine, it has to do with the story of Jesus and the life of his people. See, in the church, we're all members of another, but the critical thing is one of us is Jesus, the head of the body. And because of him, even though we were once no people, now we're God's people, conceived of him, created by him, cared for him uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, relying on and relishing the gospel of Jesus Christ together, even as we reach out to others. Sharing the gospel with Santa Fe in word and deed. As I looked at this this week, I, I, I was reminded of a place in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul is uh, actually giving some pretty detailed instructions about what ought to be the priority in corporate worship. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting chapter, but there's something at the very end of it that's always gotten my attention. Paul says that when the good news of Jesus is at the center of community, I'm paraphrasing here, being proclaimed in worship, I think in such a way that we're never getting over it. We're always relying on it. Paul says that what can happen is that when an unbeliever comes in or an outsider, what can come is conviction. What may happen is that the secrets of the heart will be disclosed and then falling on their face, they will worship God and critically, he says this, they might even declare that God is really among you. I think what he's saying is that in the context of gospel community, there are things that will be seen and savored where it is recognized those things don't occur in nature. This is only what God could do. And I think it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Of all the things our Santa Fe neighbors might see and experience in coming through the doors, will they see and experience that? Will they see a life among us in which people who would otherwise have nothing to do with one another, who might be at each other's throats in the culture, 
are hugging each other in the parking lot and coming in and say, let's go worship God together. Brother, sister. A community in which the world's seemingly intransigent divisions and grudges and injustices melt away because Jesus is greater. A community in which people are deeply known, never rejected, in which we eagerly bear one another's burdens, in which there is growing and deep affection. I, I didn't even mention the holy kiss thing, but that gives you a, a sense of the depth of affection. A community in which honor is readily accorded to, to others, regardless of resume. A community in which rights are more readily given up than they are asserted. So that in every way we see the glory of the gospel breaking out in a bruised and broken world because of our common life in Jesus in such a way that the only reasonable explanation for any of it would be, surely God is among you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, the song perfectly sums it up that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. Lord, thank you for loving us so well. It, it would have been enough merely to be saved, merely to be spared the wrath of God that should have been ours for our sins. And yet you have given us infinitely and abundantly more. And maybe the greatest gift is that you've given us one another. So Lord, would you cause the gospel to flourish in such a way, continue to flourish in such a way where we would love one another deeply from the heart, that those who come in here would be able to say, surely God is among you, and, that the, and Lord, that this would not be, um, you know, just cherished among us, but shared in Santa Fe, that we might be able to say, there's a whole other way to live, and it is glorious. Uh, Lord, give us grace as we uh, live and work among each other in the church. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.